Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, how about that uh, thrilling second impeachment? Did you like I it mean, better than the original? I was going to say, like, you know, rarely is the sequel better than the first, but... Uh, Godfather 2 of impeachments. <laughs> but, I mean, like, it, the same ending, so, you know. Yeah, um, predictable ending. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that, ending. That's my critique, uh, predictable ending. I, I wasn't sure if I need to apologize to the world of us for feeling hopeful on those days when, like, Mitch McConnell's statements were coming out in real time, but, you know, I think most times could be angry at the Republican Party. I think by the... So, what was so weird about it is by the time it happened... Um, I actually didn't really watch much because I was already preemptively angry at how I knew it was going to end. You know what I mean? So it was like, I I didn't want to watch and kind of go through the emotional ringer of that just to end with Mitch McConnell caving like he always does and nothing changing. Yeah. Well, you know, what are you going to do? We got a lot of great news for you guys this week. So we are going to talk about a bunch of stuff. First, there is a fast approaching decision that President Biden is going to have to make about Afghanistan and some new pressure on him to maybe change course. We'll dig into that. Uh, Do an update on the coup in Myanmar, censorship in Hong Kong, freedom of information in Mexico, some good news about vaccines, uh, some incremental progress for LGBT rights in the UK, attacks on activists in India and Egypt. And then we have our our number one royal correspondent here, for yes. a critical update. Uh, ben, then you did the interview this week. You talked to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. What did you guys get into? Well, we talked to, about what we've you know addressed on the show a bit, which is how to get the balance right between taking domestic extremism seriously as a threat without overreacting. And she obviously has a really unique perspective on that because she's been a target, uh, obviously, of a lot of threats, but she's also yeah. a voice of caution against overreach. And that's informed in part by coming out of a community that has been a focus of U.S. government kind of countering violent extremism policies for a decade. Uh, and then we talked about some of her work on the Foreign Affairs Committee, including an effort to to review and potentially reform the use of or overuse of, of sanctions. So it's a good, uh, good and, and there's a spoiler alert, there's a little bit of uh, puppy news at the end of the interview. So that's, that's the, the upside. I am so jealous that you got to do this interview. I'm obsessed with this uh, domestic terror legal framework question. And then I just want to know how Teddy the puppy is doing. Teddy the puppy is good. Committee assignments. Is he like in Congress? (laughs) Does he hang out with AOC's dog? Like, do you think there's like a cool dog club like there is like the squad? Uh, I I think so. I mean, spoiler alert, Teddy's doing well. Um, And uh, uh, but mainly uh, we learned that the the principal lobbying source wasn't a member of the squad. It was uh, Ilhan Omar's kids. um, Oh, well, that very similar to my household where I'm currently being lobbied very aggressively. Do you think like random uh, like Steny Hoyer shows up and tries (laughs) to like bring his dog to hang out with the squad's dogs? Or I think so. I think so. Like like press conferences. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, All right. Well, I'm very excited to listen to that. It'll be a great interview. Uh, Two quick things. One. Everyone is trying to figure out what the hell these new COVID variants mean, uh, what the deal is with the latest vaccine news, where we go from here. Check out America Dissected with Abdul uh, El-Sayed. This week, he talks to virologist Dr. Angela Rasmussen about all those issues. It's a great podcast. It's a timely episode. So check out America Dissected. And then also check out Crooked Media's YouTube channel because Alyssa Mastromonaco, I think you know her, Ben, uh, she has a great new series. Let's break it down. And this week, she's talking with John Favreau about how the State of the Union gets written. So I bet you you have some thoughts on how that goes down to the agony, the ecstasy. No, just agony. Very little ecstasy. Uh (laughs) It's just pure agony for about a month of every policy advisor in the entire government telling you that 
the five sentences they want in the State of the Union are the most important thing in the history of the world. Um, and that if we don't say those five sentences, we will hurt the feelings of every person in the world. So it, it's a fun, fun process. Uh, so the first two years in the White House, you and John Favreau basically like shared an office section, right? It was like this cave in the basement. You walked through Nancy and DePaul's office to get to John's and then yours was off on the side. And yeah. I, we would all just hang out there all the time because there were couches and stuff. And I remember like the couple days before a major speech, especially the State of the Union, you'd be sitting there like talking to Favs or talking to you. And then you guys would just look over at the computer an email would come through and John would be like, fuck you omb and like fire off some like insane response about a speech edit it was the best well but the world does should appreciate the fact too that like i always had to fight for the space for the foreign policy section you know which i I wrote eight of those which i think has got to be a record i don't think anyone else but it's kind of like a if you watch bull durham it's like a crash davis record it just shows that i kept doing (laughs) the same thing for eight years but but you know I, i went back at the end and looked at all eight of them and they're all about the same length and I had to fight for every word. And they all have the like terrible transition that John and I used to always joke about, which is about two thirds of the way through the speech, you go, you know, and just as we must defend the prosperity of the American people at home, <laughs> so must we do so beyond our borders, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. Like a, and yeah. here's the list of things that we're focused on this year, you know? Yeah, God, you guys are fighting for like an op-ed's worth of, exactly. of space to cover the whole world. The whole world, just, the whole world, yeah. It's crazy. Well, uh, Here's a transition for you, Ben. Here's an issue that came up in many, if not all, of Barack Obama's State of the Unions, which was Afghanistan. So uh, tough decision that the Biden national security team is about to confront. So a bipartisan panel called the Afghanistan Study Group released a report last week calling on the Biden administration to slow down the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan and change our policy there from getting all the troops out on May 1st to a conditions-based withdrawal process. In other words, an indefinite withdrawal date. So the study group argues that the Taliban haven't lived up to their commitments under the peace agreement that was brokered by the Trump administration, that the intra-Afghan peace talks have broken down, and that the security situation is worsening. Now, all of that is, is unequivocally true. The deal the Trump team cut said basically U.S. troops will get out by May 1st, 2021 if the Taliban renounces international terrorist groups like Al Qaeda and they refrain from attacking U.S. forces. Unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, the Taliban and Al Qaeda are still close and communicating often. And while the Taliban has stopped attacking U.S. forces, they've escalated attacks on Afghan security forces and civilians. So the security situation is very, very bad. So, Ben, I mean, here we are again. Right. You have a lot of the exact yeah. same people like Joe Dunford, former chairman of the uh, uh, Joint Chiefs, was, I think, led this effort arguing that we need more troops and more time in Afghanistan like 20 years in. There are currently 2,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, about 8,000 NATO forces. The study group recommends increasing the U.S. troop level back up to 4,500. So I'm trying to be fair-minded here, Ben. Like I think listeners to the show kind of know where we stand on this, but there are real concerns about the security situation, right? There's reports this week that the Taliban has surrounded major population centers the central government doesn't really control that much territory as it is. There's concern that when Western forces leave, the situation will get even worse. They'll have less control. It could break down into basically like, you know, factional militia based uh, uh, civil war, essentially. So I guess the question becomes, what does Biden do, right? Like, do you stick with the timeline? Do you try to renegotiate a longer time horizon with the Taliban? Not that I think that's really possible. Do you just tear up the agreement? I mean, do you have a recommendation or a prediction for like how this might play out? Yeah. Um, and first of all, 
you know, I think that even if you agreed with the instinct of the Trump administration to try to end the war, try to remove our troops, this was done in a completely haphazard and ineffective way in the sense that they did all this diplomacy with the Taliban, kind of cut out the Afghan government throughout most of that process, and then rapidly accelerated the troop withdrawals in the transition, you know, handing off to, to Biden a peace deal that is not at all being followed by the Taliban. You know, they're, right. they're supposed to reduce violence in the country, not just cease attacks on the U.S. forces. And they, they've not. They've escalated those attacks. Um, and, and, and then this timetable of May 1st to get all these troops out. And, and so I, I think that the right thing to do here is, look, slow down. I mean, some of these groups like the Afghan study group, you know, it was designed to kind of create maximum flexibility for Biden to kind of have a group of graybeards come out and say, you should stop what you're doing and you should add these troops back in. I yeah. wouldn't go as far as this group recommends and kind of re-escalating back to a status quo of a couple of years ago. I do think saying, look, we need to take a, a hard look at what's going on here. We need to evaluate whether or not this peace agreement is being followed by the Taliban. We need to determine what NATO's opinion is about this, because as you mentioned, there are actually more NATO troops in Afghanistan now than, than U.S. troops, which is a new dynamic. Uh, and then I think the most likely scenario, and, and I think probably the best approach to take right now, is to, to not kind of resurge back to where you were and kind of keep that as steady state, but to try to negotiate some delay in this withdrawal to create space for more diplomacy with the Taliban and the Afghan government more alignment with NATO. The question is, of course, the Taliban may say, no, we're uh, you're supposed to stick to this deal of May 1st. We're not going to agree to some more extended uh, time period here, adding, say, six months. I think that's one of the most prominent ideas out there, you know, giving yourself six additional months. But I don't I don't think the Taliban is like, you know, by the spirit or letter of this agreement, following it anyway, you know, and and so I don't know that they need to necessarily give the Taliban a veto on, on what they choose to do here. I think they can still say troops are coming out. This is Joe Biden. This is someone who's always been skeptical about what the US military can do here. But, you know, if we yank the plug here now, we could be dealing with a full-blown crisis in the spring that, you know, is unnecessary and, and that, that better to slow this thing down and, and to try to assemble a diplomatic play that is more effective than the current version of the deal that's in place with the Taliban. Yeah, I don't know what to think, man. I mean, look, I, I'm obviously uh, the the memory of the full Iraq withdrawal and then sending troops back in is fresh in my head, right? The, 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 you know, their argument at the time was that keeping some sort of American residual force might have prevented the security situation in Iraq from devolving. I don't know that that's proven to be true, but you know, that's what some of these same graybeards say, right? I, the concern, I guess, here is. The Taliban have been refraining from attacks on U.S. military personnel. It sounds like if we broke that agreement, it seemed un undoubtedly the case that they would resume attacking U.S. personnel. We'd see more casualties. We'd see more U.S. service members die. And I'm just like wondering, I don't know, I wonder what the best case outcome is. Like what, you just incentivize more diplomacy between this sort of like Afghan government-led group and the Taliban? I mean, yeah, I think if we're honest, like the best case scenario in Afghanistan, at least in the near future, 
is kind of like a frozen status quo where, let's face it, the Taliban controls pieces of that country, but the Afghan government controls Kabul. There's there's a dramatic reduction in fighting. Like you want ceasefires across this country. They may not hold, but you want it to reduce the level of violence and the suffering as much as you can. And then you want a really aggressive diplomatic effort to, to try to turn this into some more lasting political settlement in which you know, obviously the Taliban's going to to want some things in the negotiation, but the Afghan government should should be able to have like a stronger hand to play than they did last year when Trump kind of cut them out of the whole thing. That and even then, like you know, that that may not depend upon a lot of U.S. troops. U.S. troops, you know, being there can perpetuate a dynamic that is not you know, useful in terms of uh, moving on to the next chapter of the country. But I think the key principle here, Tommy, is like Joe Biden should, I think he should end the war. I think we should be aiming to, you know, dismantle pieces of our post 9-11 infrastructure in lots of places, including Afghanistan. But he should do it on like his terms, um, not under like a rush set of terms that, that Trump signed off on literally in the transition mm-hmm. when, you know, if I'm cynical, what Trump wanted is, you know, either to kind of yank the troops out and, and say, you know, he did this thing in Afghanistan or knowing that all hell may break loose in the spring, which is actually the typical time when the Taliban goes on an offensive. And you've got helicopters taking off from our embassy in Kabul, like Saigon 75. And then he's blaming Joe Biden uh, for, uh, for, for what happened. I think Biden just, you know, needs to, to take a look, make a decision not a lengthy, painful review like we had and like Trump had too. I'm not suggesting let's have six months and let, you know, I'm just saying like pause this thing and and try to see what, you know, if you can give yourselves a few more months here, um, whether you can assemble a better looking picture than the one that is assembled right now. Because the one that is assembled right now, you know, seems to lead pretty inexorably to the Taliban being ascendant, the Afghan people being screwed, the US pulling out, there'll be calls for us to go back in. Like, you know, let's just see if it's possible. And it may not be, by the way. We may just conclude, you know, the Biden people may conclude, you know, there's not much, there's no better that we can achieve here. But it should be their policy, not something that Trump pulled a hand grenade pin out of and handed it to them, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, look, it was a a capricious exit by the Trump folks, but also even going back further, I mean, the deal that was negotiated. Yeah, it's a deal itself. It's less the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this May 1st deadline, like if the Taliban are living up to their end of it, that Biden folks shouldn't feel bound by an agreement that's not being followed by any parties. But you're right. Hopefully, hopefully they're they're just talking about, okay, when are we getting everybody home more than anything else? And that's the key point. If the Taliban was following this deal and they were really reducing the level of violence across the country and, you know, doing the things that they committed to, it'd be a different story. That's the dynamic that I think you have to address. Right, Um, right, right. Um, okay, well, we're going to watch this one because the Biden folks are on the record. I mean, John Kirby, our friend, Pentagon spokesman, is on the record saying that the Taliban aren't living up to their side of the deal. So they're going to have to move pretty quickly on a decision here. Um, let's turn to another crisis that was, you know, uh, landed in Joe Biden's lap, which is the situation in Myanmar. So on February 1st, uh, this, the military in Myanmar staged a coup. They took control of the government. They declared a one-year state of emergency. And they put a bunch of prominent lawmakers, including Aung San Suu Kyi, under house arrest. Uh, there have been nationwide strikes and protests ever since. And then on Sunday night, the military sent troops into cities across the country, presumably to round up government workers who have been participating in these strikes. They're also rounding up journalists and activists. It's a very scary situation. Um, the military, I think, announced basically this sort of they set up like a fake government 
they announced that they can indefinitely detain anyone they want. And apparently they let 23,000 prisoners out of yeah. jail to make room for pro-democracy advocates. So that is uh, scary. The government uh, has also been shutting off the internet at night. I assume it's to make it harder to organize so that they can't, you know, activists can't warn each other about military offensives and generally just scare the shit out of everyone. Ben, so the situation here seems quite dire and worsening, but these protests are extraordinarily big and brave in, in context, right? When you think about a, a military dictatorship coming back, I mean, the fact that uh, the New York Times quoted an analyst who estimated that three quarters of Myanmar's civil service employees have walked off their jobs in protest. I mean, that's a huge swath of the population taking a very dangerous step. What else are you hearing about like the situation on the ground in Myanmar and the strength of this resistance movement in response? So I have a, a bunch of friends in Myanmar who are activists participating in these protests, watching these protests. Um, and I, I think that on the one, the positive sign, as you said, is that the scale of these protests, you know, is surprised even the people participating in them, that, it, you know, it's so broad. And, and again, I, I've mentioned this before, but part of this can be attributed to the fact that younger people in particular, you know, they, they've had this version of democracy, not a full one for 10 years. They don't want to lose it. The scariest thing that I've heard. Uh, number one is they, they, they're basically beginning to kind of shut down the internet periodically yeah. and, and trying to choke off the capacity of people to communicate with each other. And I've even had people kind of WhatsApp me and say, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to talk to you again, <laughs> you know, um, it, which, you know, is, is this really sad and terrifying kind of message to get. But then the other thing is this release of prisoners from the prisons. This is an old tactic that they used to use way back in the day in Burma, where Aung San Suu Kyi was actually once almost killed by a mob of prisoners who'd been released uh, mm. that kind of attacked the motorcade that she was in. She was driving in in the north of the country. People have seen this movie before. And what I've heard is they're not just releasing these prisoners. They're releasing them and telling them, go start shit with these protesters, right? So imagine you come out to some peaceful protest and the military has just released essentially a mob of violent criminals who've been sent there to just kind of rough you up, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's really a bad underhanded tactics. Um, and, and so what can you do about it? I think the Biden team announced some initial sanctions, very focused uh, on the, the military leadership and trying to freeze their money, trying to make it as hard for them to kind of exist in polite society in the world, travel bans and things like that, um, which is a good place to start. Because I, again, I don't think you start by sanctioning this whole country. I think you start by trying to send a message to the military leadership. You continue to go down this road and, and you're going to be completely cut off. And if you actually walk back from the precipice and maybe not all of them will, but if you can make an appeal to some of the people in that military leadership, hey, don't follow this guy off a cliff. Um, I think that's an appropriate message to send, while at the same time you get as many countries as you can to join you in delivering that message as well. Like you yeah. don't want to go down this road. If you do, you're just going to be cut off. The population is going to keep protesting, so you're not necessarily going to be able to have a stable situation in this country. You're not going to be welcome in the international community. Uh, and you just kind of create as sharp a choice as you can for the military in the coming weeks and months to you know try to encourage them to, to have some of their own internal divisions and have some people say, you know, we're not going to go along with this thing anymore. So you're isolating the kind of more hardline people and trying to, to create an opening to return to the de de democratic reforms that were taking place. I think, candidly, that's still a long shot, yeah. in part because the Chinese seem to be 
okay with this and they can kind of fill in a lot of the space of you know economic activity that is lost under certain kinds of sanctions but it's worth trying because look how much these people are sacrificing in the streets of Myanmar right now if they can do that then then they need our they need us to have their backs and they need as many countries as we can muster in a coalition to have their backs yeah uh we'll obviously keep watching this one uh one other china related story i wanted to cover so Last week, the Chinese government announced that they are going to pull the BBC World News Service off of the radio in China and in Hong Kong. This comes after authorities in the UK withdrew a license for the China Global Television Network. Uh, And it comes also after a a big, harrowing BBC investigation uh, into human rights violations by authorities in Xinjiang, China, over the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. So this is just, you know, the latest example of the erosion of freedoms that were supposed to be guaranteed to Hong Kong under the one country, two systems system. So Ben, I can't say I'm surprised by this, but I just wanted to continually raise, you know, all these sort of incremental efforts we're seeing to crush, you know, freedoms, crush dissent in Hong Kong. And also, you know, I noticed that Joe Biden uh, said he had a two hour call with Xi Jinping. So you have to imagine that, you know, a bunch of the issues we just talked about, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, uh, were central in that discussion. And it was probably not a very fun one. No, I imagine, you know, it was tense, but the Chinese are always, you know, very calm and measured in these things. So you can't read in the conversation uh, what's necessarily antagonizing them. Look, I think on this BBC thing, the, the one point I'd make is it can seem like, well, what does the U.S. government do about this? What do we do? Do we kick out some Chinese mm-hmm. media? And, and look, that's worth uh, talking about. But I think the bigger thing is this isn't just for the U.S. government. The reason that China can single out the BBC for their coverage of Hong Kong or their coverage of the treatment of the Uyghurs is because so many other media outlets self-censor and what they say about China. And I'm not talking about just news media. I'm talking actually more about like what kind of movies get made and distributed, what kind of just what kind of media there is available in entertainment mm-hmm. in news that the NBA yeah that, yeah that 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 is is candidly just willing to be as transparent about what is going on in China as they are in the US you know um they should be critical of us they should be critical of China they should be critical of Russia and so i think that that the reason they can pick off a bbc here and there is that they they've kind of cowed a lot of media and entertainment businesses from you know, shining a light on what's going on. And, and so it, it's not just on Joe Biden. It's kind of on everybody to decide, am I really going to let the Chinese Communist Party, you know, be in my head every time I greenlight a film or make a decision about whether to a documentary gets made or, or, or whether or not, you know, we have a, a series in our newspaper about something that's happening in Xinjiang. You're like, you know, it's their strength in numbers, because if everybody just decides that they're not going to self-censor like that, well, then you China can't necessarily kick everybody out, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. There will not be a uh, crooked media Beijing bureau anytime soon. No, uh, yeah, yeah. We're willing uh, to be hard hitting, but yeah, it's not a lot of money <laughs> at stake for us. So, Yeah, exactly. Uh, OK, let's do some good news here. So some very good news has come out about uh, efforts to stop the coronavirus. So we talked about how Israel has moved really quickly and effectively to vaccinate Israeli citizens. They, they left out the Palestinians, but they have vaccinated hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of people in Israel. And that has allowed them to collect a ton of data about the impact. So there was a recent study 
by Israel's largest healthcare provider, and they reported a 94% drop in symptomatic COVID-19 infections among the 600,000 people who received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And that same group was also 92% less likely to develop severe illness. So I just raise this because like the data in the trial is bearing out in the real world and like hope is on the way, folks. If we mask up for a while, right, these vaccinations are incredibly effective. We just need more and more of them out there. The more people are getting vaccinated, the more, the fewer people there are to get infected. The spread will slow. So just very, very good news out of that Israeli study. Yeah, it's great news. Um, and and it, it's a good reminder, too, that like as these vaccine programs roll out in different parts of the world, hopefully we'll also be able to learn from the experiences of other yeah. countries, just yeah. like they can learn from us so that not only you're getting vaccines to people faster, but you know, you're able to calibrate what you're focused on based on this data. But this is good news. I mean, I, yeah, it's I, really good news. I was gra- I'm grabbing for COVID, you know, good news as I I begin to go insane in month twelve here, and and that was a good day. <laughs> Me too. The, the other COVID thing I saw was the South Korean intelligence service reported that North Korean hackers tried to steal information about coronavirus vaccines and treatments. There's a dispute between the South Korean intel guys and some uh, lawmaker who talked about this publicly about whether or not they specifically hacked Pfizer. But it just made me think, like, you know, again, there's a World Health Organization backed effort uh, called COVAX that is designed to ensure like global and equitable distribution of vaccines. That's going to take a while to get ramped up. I, I have I have no idea if North Korea or any other country has the technical capability to manufacture the Pfizer vaccine or these new mRNA vaccines. But it's still like I read this and I think I don't really think North Korea is the bad guy for trying to get you know a vaccine for its people, even if it requires stealing. I, maybe that's a maybe that's a naive or, uh, you know, bad way to think about it. But I don't know. I, we need the whole world vaccinated, not just because North Korea is full of human beings. We don't want to die from the coronavirus. But if you just want to be fucking selfish about it, you don't want this virus raging through the world and mutating again and again and again. Right. We need everybody vaccinated. So I still wish there was some way to open source this information. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think th- I, I I totally think that when it comes to health, like all other political considerations should fade away. Um, you know, you should want every person in whatever country they are, whatever government they're living under to be vaccinated because as a moral issue and, and as you said, a safety issue. And look, this is the, the darker side of the Israeli story. You know, I saw a headline the other day. Knesset, Israeli Knesset debates whether to make vaccine available to Gaza. I saw like, that, well, too. Like make the vaccine available, you know, like I mean, we did no debate. And same thing on on North Korea. And and, and, because if you also look at the projections of the global vaccine distribution, you know, it's like it's a bit uncomfortable. Right. To realize that, you know, there's the U.S. and Europe and China and, you know, South Korea in kind of a 2021 time frame. And and some of the time frames in Africa are like into 2023 right now. Um, It's like that just should not be the world we live in. Yeah, no, no, it should not. Uh, okay, let's turn to Mexico for, for a very different story. So our listeners have probably heard us talk about the U.S. Freedom of Information Act. We nerds call it FOIA. Uh, it's a law that allows the public to request records from any federal agency It's not a perfect law or perfect process. Some information is exempt. The process can be slow and cumbersome. But like FOIA has helped journalists and activists get all kinds of information, report out corruption, et cetera. Mexico is a similar law in process. It's called the National Institute for Access to Information, or INAI. 
And in some ways, it's better than FOIA. Nexian authorities are required to respond faster. They have to get back to you within 30 days. And the institute itself can overrule the Mexican government if it tries to block the release of information. So like, it's been pretty effective. Um, when the INAI was created in 2002, it was seen as this big step forward to fight corruption. Over the last few decades, it has helped reveal like huge government corruption stories. It's helped get you know citizens uh, access to basic information like homicide figures that weren't released. But here's the rub, Ben. Uh, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO for short, wants to get rid of this process. He's complaining that it's too expensive, that it's failed to end corruption. And so transparency advocates and AMLO critics say, like, this is just a sign of his authoritarian instincts sort of flaring up again. I I wondered how much this one worried you, like him seemingly trying to shut down what has become a really important way to get information, even if you know, the Mexican judicial system hasn't always proven to be, you know, fully uh, set up to, you know, prosecute some of the high profile individuals uh, after this, you know, these stories are revealed. I think it's really troubling. And and look, I think this issue around transparency and anti-corruption is right in the zeitgeist of what is needed in the world today. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, you know, we've talked a lot about corruption, but the positive side is when Countries adapt kind of transparency measures and open government measures like this. It builds trust with citizens in their government. It frankly creates a deterrent against corruption because people are aware, like, well, maybe my maybe my stuff could you know, be made public. Uh, and it, it, it kind of enforces accountability for better governance. So in some countries, particularly corrupt countries at the local level, you know, mayors and city councils have embraced transparency measures like this, where they'll they'll make documents public, they'll show you how budgets are made. And government is better when the people can look over the shoulders of, of those in power. So across the board, I think a law like this is critically important. It's not just kind of like a, a side thing. And is it a pain in the ass? Yeah. I've, I've got, you know, the right wing group Judicial Watch has been foying my every word yes, that they could get their hands on. I'm still getting notices like about them foying stuff from 10 years ago or however long ago related to you know Benghazi or God knows what. But you know what? Like that's worth it to live in a, a transparent society. And so I, I there's no way to read AMLO's move. I mean, I, you know, every time someone says it's too expensive. To, right. to carry this out. Well, you know what's expensive? The corruption in your government if you don't have people looking over your shoulder, you know? Yeah. So I, I think this does bear watching is, are there a, a range of moves, you know, that this is a part of that, that feel de- designed to kind of begin to, to, to roll back Mexican democracy? And, and there's enough reason to, to worry that there might be. Not that Amlo's gonna make himself, you know, dictator for life, but just, you know, you, as we've learned in this country, you know, you you start to take apart democratic norms and practices and, and you get worse outcomes. Yeah, the, the Washington Post had a good write up of this this whole issue. And it noted that, you know, AMLO has been doing these like two hour press conferences on Friday. And he, it seemed to suggest that he thought that that was the better way to release information. And like, you know, God help us if right the, yeah. the hours long rambling Trump press conferences were seen as a replacement to FOIA or any other sort of disclosure mechanism. I mean, that's just not not credible. Or COVID, like, you know, all we get, right. all the information we <laughs> yeah. got on COVID was Trump. I mean, uh, uh, people should check out, like, uh, the Open Government Partnership is a good organization that does mm-hmm. a lot of work on how different nations can learn from each other about transparency, obviously Transparency International. This is important stuff that that is not just a niche issue because it connects to basically the health of democracy itself. 
Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, here's a story out of the UK that uh, made me happy. So British men and women who were expelled from the British military for being gay will be able to have their service medals restored. Now, that obviously doesn't fully right the wrong of being thrown out of the military for, for who you love, right? Some of these individuals lost their pensions. Some even got jail time. But activists welcome this announcement as an important first step as a, as a longer effort to right that wrong. So until 2000, uh, gays and lesbians were prevented from serving in the British military. About 200 to 250 men and women were thrown out each year because of their sexuality. And in some cases, the medals they had received were physically ripped off their uniforms after a court martial. Imagine the humiliation of like serving your country and that happening. Um, this article, uh, I read about this in The Guardian. It also detailed just the absolute outrageous and absurd links that the British military police went to to spy on and expose the sexuality of British service members. Like one guy had a a magazine in his room that was found and they spent two years like bugging his room and paying informants to get information on him. So it was good to see, uh, you know, the British defense ministry begin to address this historical injustice. It's also um, uh, kind of awful to think that we're talking about like late nineties history, right? This is very recent history uh, that we're talking about when people are just treated in horrendous ways for their sexuality. Yeah, no, it's a great step. And and I, I think it's important that, you know, the past is a part of changing these things. It, there's trauma involved for these individuals, like you mentioned. But like, you know, you, you need to set the historical record straight about where you went wrong, uh, about the contributions that people made that were forgotten or attacked in, in other cases. But also, like, we feel like things have changed so fast, right? I yeah. mean, you know, you mentioned the Brit British change in 2000. We had Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was only in 2010 I know. A decade ago, that the United States permitted people who were openly LGBT to, to be in the military. Like, that's where we are in this country. And, and by the way, we're way ahead of a whole lot of other countries. And so it's also important to set an example for the countries that haven't had this kind of tipping point yet. You know, and the military is often a, a good barometer for the society. In this country, you saw Don't Ask, Don't Tell pass in 2010. And it was a few years later that gay marriage is something the law of the land. I think those things were connected, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's important, you know, to set an example to other countries about how, how, how to do this and how to make the, the effort to support gay rights in the military connected to broader movements as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great story. I uh, highly recommend reading more about it. Um, let's turn to India because we've talked a few times recently uh, about Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India and the you know, disconcerting anti-democratic trends that he is leading in the country. Here's another example. Police in India jailed a 21-year-old activist named Disha Ravi for sending Greta Thunberg, the 18-year-old climate activist, a Google Doc with information about how to support the farmers' protest in India. We talked in great detail about the farmers' protest last week, but the quick version is that millions of Indian farmers have been protesting uh, Modi's efforts to deregulate the agricultural industry because they're worried it's going to, you know, impoverish them, leave them in further debt, uh, and and let them, you know, throw them to the wolves, basically the mercy of this big agro business. Um, so the police accused Ishravi of trying to quote spread disaffection against the Indian state and are holding her in prison under a sedition law. They also uh, accused Greta Thunberg of being part of an international conspiracy against India for tweeting a link. To this document. So Ben, I think this case has gotten a lot of attention because it is just so absurd, right? Like this isn't some subversive anti-government activist. This is a young woman whose activism to date has been about cleaning up lakes and parks 
in educating young people about climate change. So I guess here's my question for you. Do you think this is an example of Indian authorities overreaching and screwing up? Or does this seem like they're trying to pick an international fight to send a message that's basically like, don't fuck with us, don't get involved with the farmers protest like this is about sovereignty. I, I think it's very much part of a kind of comprehensive strategy, like not a, you know, a fuck up from their perspective. This is what they, they're doing. You know, one of the things that we didn't spend as much time on last week is the threat to activists. And, and what you've seen is it's multifaceted. Some people have been targeted with violence, literally. Um, some people have been detained. Some people have been censored. Some people have been the target of like ferocious kind of Twitter mobs and online disinformation campaigns. So this isn't just like one case of one person, you know, uh, being picked up for this thing. This is a part of like a, a, a clear campaign of harassment, intimidation, and sometimes violence against activists. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I have to say, like, it doesn't seem to be working. You know, I mean, if, if anything, like the sense of injustice in the government's response is only shining a brighter spotlight on the farmers' core demands to begin with. So I think we, you know, should pay tribute and and you know really send our support out to people who are taking enormous risks. But I think they can also take some degree of encouragement from the fact that while the government has been escalating their response to this, the spotlight's just been getting brighter and brighter and brighter yep. inside of India and beyond it. And you know, Modi seems to only have one play, which is to get harder and tougher and more aggressive. Again, they really need to pull back from this brink here and find a way to channel this into some discussion with the farmers, some different process. I'm not saying that's, you know, likely, um, but uh, that may end up being the only way out because um, this doesn't seem to be abating in any way. No, no, it does not. I want to talk about a similar story uh, out of Egypt. So, uh, Egyptian security services raided the homes of six relatives of a guy named Mohammed Sultan, who's a friend of yours, uh, who's an Egyptian-American human rights activist who now lives in Virginia. This is part of a pattern by Egyptian authorities of harassment against the families of government critics who live abroad. And in this case, from, from 2013 to 2015, Mohammed Sultan was held as a political prisoner in Egypt. He was brutally tortured, and he is now uh, has a court case in the U.S. Uh, against some of the people who oversaw his torture. But, you know, Ben, we haven't talked about Egypt as much as, say, like Saudi Arabia or the UAE when it comes to these bilateral relationships that are likely to be very different under Biden than they were under Trump, right? Like Trump famously referred to President Sisi of Egypt as his favorite dictator, infamously, I should have said. And he basically gave him a pass on all human rights questions. Do you see momentum in the Biden administration or in among members of Congress to rethink the U.S.-Egypt relationship in the way we've seen a lot of conversation about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, for example, or like the amount of assistance we provide or, or like or just, you know, more pressure around these human rights cases? There should be. I mean, I think there's some, but probably not enough. And we should be talking about it more. Mohammed Sultan's case, and he is a friend of mine, but it's a good example. This is a guy who was detained, I think unjustly, very unjustly, um, after the coup in 2013, tortured, right? Uh, went on a hunger strike. Uh, was I mean, if you, you want to hear the story, it's in Missing America, episode six, um, which is you know, still out there. Um, this is an American citizen. Yeah. who didn't do anything wrong. And and then after he becomes 
obviously a vocal critic of the Egyptian government's human rights practices, they go after his family because he's exercising his right to free speech in the United States. And by the way, it's not just Mohammed Sultan. There are tens of thousands of political prisoners uh, in Egypt. This is a government that is the second largest recipient of American foreign assistance in the world after Mm -hmm. Israel. That's wrong. That should not be the case. We should not be giving over a billion dollars a year in military assistance to a military that is doing that. And and if you want to know the pressures, part of the pressures are a lot of the assistance to Egypt is actually payments to like American defense contractors to make stuff and then give it to the Egyptians. Well, you know what? Like this should all be under review. And and I, I would really like to see, and I argued for this in the Obama administration and usually lost the argument. Um, but like there, we should not be writing blank checks to, to someone who's literally harassing the families of Americans after torturing them. Like th- this, th- if you if you con- continue to enable that ty- type of behavior, why wouldn't CC stop? So I really hope that in addition to like looking at the Saudi relationship, they are looking at this Egyptian relationship because we've this has been a human rights unmitigated disaster, not just for Mohammed, but again, for like tens of thousands of political prisoners in the country. Yeah, it's also notable, I guess, that uh, Biden has not called LCC yet. Um, he is way down on the list now. I think he's talked to sort of 30 some odd heads of state. The Jen Psaki had to come out today and say that uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu will be the first Middle Eastern head of state that Biden will call because the sort of uh, concern trolling uh, in the media yeah. about when Biden was going to call him sort of reached a, a fevered pitch over the weekend. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, this is this is this is unacceptable. I, I, I don't know how you can possibly support a government with this much military yeah. assistance when they're just targeting families of American citizens. That's insane. Like if, if that was happening to a country that was an adversary of the United States, like if that was happening in Iran, right? right. Like people would be like, what are you doing to stop that? These are people that we're giving over a billion dollars to who are doing this to an American, harassing his family because he speaks out against what they do. Like that, that uh, it's just outrageous. Jen, I saw Jen's comment, you know, that um, that when when you have to put out statements like that, like it's the kind of and uh, in, in like posit Jen Psaki is like the greatest human in the world, um, but it's like the kind of statement that's not going to make anybody happy because it's no. not going to make it's not going to make um, those who are upset that BB hasn't been called happy yet. But it's going to make some people unhappy that you still felt like you had to give them. The, you know, this is this is stupid psychodrama though. You know, and, and we used to go through this. I remember. Do you remember Tommy? You were there when there was like a meeting that Obama had with Bibi that wasn't scheduled. It was like scheduled late because Bibi was in town. So it wasn't like a big formal planned bilateral visit. And there wasn't like a photographer in the -hmm. meeting. And for like the next five years, we would get like, why didn't you have photography? There's a a lot of um, focus on these kind of protocol issues that I honestly don't think are that important. They haven't haven't called Bibi yet. Like Bibi was like a a giant asshole to the Obama-Biden administration. Big surprise, he hasn't been called yet. But you know what? He will be called. He's the prime minister of a very important country that Americans care a lot about. It'll happen. Like, let's just not get too focused on the small stuff here. The the bigger issues, like what we're talking about with Egypt, uh, ultimately matter more. Yeah, there there are these weird uh, self owns in some of these relationships. Like the Churchill bust is a, another great example. It's like. <laughs> yeah. The the British press manufactures a controversy about the Churchill bust 
which leads to a, a bunch of hand-wringing about whether the U.S.-U.K. relationship is as strong as it once was, which becomes this like self-perpetuating cycle yeah. of bullshit, which makes everyone then question it. Like, same thing is happening here with this, this Biden-Netanyahu call. Like, they talked after the election. They will talk it at some point soon. The U.S.-Israel relationship is rock solid. There's probably better, closer ties among U.S. officials and Israeli officials than literally every single other country. Like, people that go back decades and decades, right? And and yet, like these issues get manufactured in the press of where you are in the pecking order of the head of state call. It's just such a waste of time. Yeah. And even as someone who's like a, obviously a huge critic of BB, and we've talked a lot about, you know, Iran and the Palestinian issue on this show, as well as some developments in Israel, I I care more about what Biden says to BB when they talk than right. about like whether he calls him next week or the week after. You know? And BB's like, got an election coming up. The like, there's a lot of yeah. factors here. Yeah. It's yeah. stupid. Um, okay, last issue before we get to your conversation uh, with Ilhan Omar, which is, Ben, you are our official uh, British royal correspondent. So there's some news when it comes to Harry and Meghan Markle. But now that they're former royals, are you still comfortable and qualified to break this story for us? How, how does this work now? I mean, look, you know, the risk of a bad cliche, like, Despite Harry and Meghan's uh, understandable efforts, um, being a British world's a bit like the Hotel California, you know, you can mm-hmm. check out, but you can never leave. Um, and, and and I'll be honest too, like the reality is, like they're doing a lot of stuff, right? They got an Oprah special coming up. The the, the yeah. news, by the way, we should say is that they've announced their second child, right? Which is very exciting. You know, uh, very exciting. Uh, a, a royal baby of, of people who are kind of semi-royals now. But the reality is like they have a giant platform in part because they're former royals, you know, and they're going to be doing this big show with Oprah and they've got a Netflix deal. Um, so the, the, the fact that, you know, people are interested in um, the fact that there's another royal baby coming um, just shows that the, you know, the ties are always going to be there. I saw them getting some shit though. I'm going to back them up on this a little bit. I saw some people like trying to dunk on them being like, well, you said you uh, you know, didn't want to be harassed into providing personal news, and now you you announced your personal news as if you know you're a celebrity. And well, yeah, the question is, do they get to live on their own terms? And and I think whether or not you agree with everything Harry and Meghan have done, like people should be out, allowed to live on their own terms, especially if they're saying that they're not going to be taking money anymore from the royals, and you know they're 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 moving on here. But look, they're always going to be like in seen that way and what th- that may not be everything they want and that may not be everything that people who are mad at them want it is what it is and uh, very exciting that they have a new addition to the family yeah and also you know megan markle also uh wrote very publicly about uh, a miscarriage she had some of the struggles yeah. they've had to have a second kid so obviously everyone should be nothing but excited for them uh, about this news they also live in a world where they know that there are an infinite number of news outlets desperate for any information about them still uh, and willing to sell it to the highest bidder. So, of course, they're going to announce stuff like this on their own terms. There's no, there's no hiding whether or not you're having a kid. That's crazy. And here to get Harry's back, like this is a guy whose mom was literally hounded to her death by paparazzi in the press. You know, like they have every right to have an extra desire to control their own story and the way they interact with the press like that. That just is what it is. And I, I think there's like a human component to that. 
Right. I, I don't know why it's not obvious to, to everybody. Of course, yeah. that's what they want, you know? And so I, they I, announce they're having a kid, like, be happy for them. Just say it's good. You don't have to, like, turn it into, like, some big indictment of them, that, you know, how they release this news. Like, let them just do it the way they want to do it. I got this email from a, a super nice uh, correspondent at a, at a British outlet who was asking about, apparently there was a meeting between Governor Gavin Newsom of California and Meghan Markle and Harry, and there was some speculation that she might want to run for Senate. So the guy was like, I, you know, you're someone who is sort of dialed into California politics. Do you know anything about this? And I was like, I don't know shit about California politics. Yeah. California politics is a world in and of itself. I wish I could help you, but I know nothing. But, you know, it, it shows you how quickly like, everything gets spun up like a, a meeting with Gavin Newsom that was probably about the foundation. Suddenly yeah. there were some rumors out there that it was about a Senate seat. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like just when, cause you know, I look, I can see that. Okay. Some people might be annoyed like Harry and Megan, they, they decamped to the U S they're setting up shop in California, the Netflix thing. But then like these critics consistently kind of prove their point for them. You know, like if Harry and Meghan's point was like, you guys are, are all on our ass, you're negative, you don't respect Harry's lived experience uh, with the press, you seem to be holding Meghan Markle to some higher standard. You know, she's the first, uh, obviously, kind of a black royal of, 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 uh, in that position. Uh, you know, like the, the critics, kind of, you know, they can't even have a meeting with Gavin Newsom without it being about some like, you know, ambition that she, you know, they, they probably just want to meet the guy. They live in California now. Yeah, I was listening to uh, Keep It, and uh, I think I can't remember who made the point uh, on the show, but they talked about how, you know, a lot of people have been watching the Britney Spears documentary. And then because of that doc, interviews of, you know, prominent female actresses in the early 2000s of surface, like Lindsay Lohan on Letterman. And you, you rewatch these interviews from like, yeah. you know, the late 90s or early 2000s. And it is horrific. It is unbelievable that David Letterman is mocking someone about going into rehab in the year 2003. And it, it just feels like uh, a thousand years ago. But that kind of coverage and that kind of tone was like what was written about Meghan Markle two years ago, three years ago. It's just it's absolutely brutal coverage. Yeah. And I, I, the Diana stuff is a trip to go back and, and look at, you know, I mean, like, because you can obviously see it in like the crown and stuff. But like, if you go back and you look at just the 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 degree of aggression from the paparazzi for that woman, like they, you know, it was just, it's uncomfortable to, to, to go back and look at that. And yet yeah, in this kind of dehumanizing way and, and gendered way. So, you know what, like, let's cut the, let's cut Harry and Megan some slack here. Even if, you know, even if they've been a bit clumsy in some of the steps they've taken. Yeah. Oh, and, and, uh, and Jordan corrects me. The Lindsay Lohan interview was 2013, which is that thing more. blew my mind. Just, I, 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 I couldn't I, believe he did. I that. could, I like it, 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 you know what, like, it, and th let's turn this into a positive, you know, um, because I, uh, and it's funny when I taught, I taught at USC and UCLA and it was dark, it was, you know, peak Trump. And, and one of the things I said to the the kids and I sound like an old guy, right? Like I'm talking. One of the things I said to the kids is, um, like, there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of stuff to be upset about. But culturally, when I think about 20 years ago, when I was sitting in a college classroom, like the way that the cultural norms have shifted. First of all, like most of the people were white um, when I was sitting in the classroom, and and just yeah, the way in which people spoke normally in the culture, like this is a more progressive country today than it was. 20 years ago in so many ways, our politics can kind of conceal that. But man, you look at that David Letterman thing 
and he he's treating this like young woman like she's not a person like she you yeah. know making fun of her for going to rehab like uh and and like play and the audience yucking it up like it's an applause line it, ooh, uncomfortable it also makes me think about the birther uh story yeah. narrative which you know look Barack Obama politically he didn't you know like to he didn't always talk about race. He chose his moments when he wanted to talk about racial issues. But the birther thing was so self-evidently racist, and it shouldn't have taken him to point that out. Like the press corps should have known, like, hey, this is fucked up. It's racist. Stop inviting him on like the Today Show. Donald Trump, I'm talking about. Stop inviting Donald Trump on the Today Show to lay out these birther rumors in 2011. No, and and like Obama, like this is a hobby horse of mine. We can come back and talk about this, and and we can talk about it actually around my book because it's it's in my book a bunch. Like the the there was a ton of racism that is going to age in a really strange way in the Obama years, and one of the reasons why he didn't go around talking about race all the time is precisely because of like he you know writes in his memoir when he said it was stupid to arrest Henry Louis Gates, a prominent uh, Harvard professor, in his home. Like his polling dropped precipitously, and then the media had like a two-week debate over whether he'd made some big mistake that was going to derail his yep. agenda. Obama and, plays the race card. Like, yeah, when he's just kind of and and so think of how it's going to look in like twenty years that when we had our first black president, there was like a multi-year conspiracy theory that he wasn't born in the U.S. He was born in Africa, led by Donald Trump, that a majority of Republican voters believed throughout the whole Obama presidency. That's going to look as weird as like colored water fountains look to us now. I mean, that, that's it, what it's going to look like, you know? It is It is shocking when you think about it. Uh, and thanks again, Donald Trump, for that one. Thanks. Yeah. It's really great. appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, okay. We've, uh, you know, we've gone from like Burma to, uh, to Lindsay yeah, Lohan. Wide ranging. It's been a good show. Wide ranging show. Uh, when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. So stick around for that. Well, I'm now very pleased to be joined by Minnesota Congresswoman and member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Representative Ilhan Omar. Uh, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, great to be here with you. So I, I wanted to start with, you know, an issue that's obviously been dominating the news, uh, which is this challenge of white supremacist terrorism um, and extremism in the United States. Um, and what's interesting in watching your comments on this and, and your, your leadership on this is on the one hand, there, there are very few individuals in this country who understand better than you that this is dangerous, that that there's an extremism out there, a kind of conspiracy theory minded extremism, white supremacist extremism that that could endanger people. And, and you live this obviously on January 6th. At the same time, I've noticed you warning um, about the risk of overreach uh, in shifting resources and attention to domestic extremism, uh, you know, the danger essentially of maybe repeating some of the post 9-11 excesses and how we, we look at this. So I'm wondering, how, how do you unpack that? How do you get the balance right between taking seriously a threat that could put people in danger without uh, overreaching in a way that, you know, in, implicates uh, civil liberties or a kind of social, uh, social order? Uh, how, how do you get that balance right? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think for for a lot of us, you know, we're forgetting to sort of um, examine like how we got here. Uh, there, there is a clear 
radicalization um, of so many segments of our society that has taken place for nearly a decade now. I mean, we have TV personalities who have um, radicalized domestic terrorists uh, who have been named in court cases um, of, of domestic terrorists who have slaughtered Muslims, immigrants, uh, and, and, and other minorities um, for the last decade. And, you know, obviously this, this mode of radicalization isn't fully understood, um, analyzed, uh, and has sort of been, I would say, uh, normalized or minimized in, in so many ways. Um, until we saw what happened on January 6th, and it arrived at the doors um, of the country's lawmakers. And even now we're seeing so many of them say, right, like it, that what, what we saw with our own eyes um, didn't really happen. Yeah. Uh, that these people um, who were violent um, and, you know, in so many ways, acting from uh, the the direction and uh, and who were incited by uh, the president and many of, of our colleagues in in Congress were not, uh, and so I think that there is a problem there that we have to figure out how to deal with, understand, and analyze. Uh, sort of what we have done with you know other radicalizations um, globally that that has taken place. But I think for me, it's really important that um, that we don't do the easy thing that normally lawmakers do, where is to like jump to institute these laws. And I, I've hear I've heard a lot of them talk about um, domestic terrorism laws to try mm-hmm. to quell the fear that so many people are experiencing because it's important that we don't give in to this fear and allow ourselves to be terrorized by those who seek to harm us and get us to a point where, you know, the only answer we see is one that creates a broader security structure and a deeper police state. Yeah. Um, because then we are going to fall into this trap of making policies guided by the, the terror that we're feeling uh, instead of three, treating the symptoms of the illness um, that, that is at the root of, of the cause. Yeah, so it's an interesting way of looking at it, right? Because, you know, you, you stack up a bunch of authorities, um, you know, uh, legal authorities or kind of national security-based uh, new resources. Um, it, it sounds like from what you're saying, in addition to potential overreach into things like civil liberties, that may actually avoid looking more directly at why people are becoming radicalized. And it actually might radicalize more people. Yeah, yeah. Because as we are seeing now, right, every time we talk about accountability, we are seeing these people who are using their pulley pulpit to say, right, that these people are coming for your freedoms. You have to stop them. And that in itself is going to radicalize people to, to take actions that are violent and harmful um, to the stability of, of our society. And I, and I know as someone who comes from a community that has been vilified yeah. and um, monitored 
uh, and whose civil liberties have been disregarded, uh, that that's not what we want to do. I mean, we have we live in a country where people should enjoy um, their their freedoms and where we have people who are smart enough to understand that there are root causes uh, and there are actual people responsible for radicalizing. And that's that's who needs to be held accountable. Yeah, and I guess actually one other question I'd ask, because I remember, um, you know, being in meetings in government uh, candidly, right, um, where you had a bunch of people in Washington, <laughs> you know, talking about ways to counter violent extremism in the Somali community in Minnesota. You know, you basically had a bunch of white dudes sitting in in, in windowless rooms talking about you know community outreach and countering violent extremism, and it did feel like it was it was an entirely securitized conversation, you know, about always assuming the worst. Uh, in, in what could be happening in a community, um, I mean, what 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 went wrong when you, without kind of totally getting into the history of of this, like just so people know, there was this kind of fear that there'd be radicalization in the Somali American community in Minnesota from Al Shabaab, an overseas terrorist organization. What what, what lessons should be taken from that experience? about what, what not to do or, or what to do uh, when it comes with any kind of radicalization here in the U.S.? Ah, um, I mean, I, I think I, I, the things that, I, that were apparent to me when those conversations were um, taking place is, is that people, one, were not fully understanding um, the kind of disenfranchisement that needed to be addressed and who was exploiting that disenfranchisement that people were feeling. It wasn't mm -hmm. disenfranchisement because of resources, because I remember, you know, when the CVE conversations were happening, people were like, oh, these are poor communities. We have to give them resources. And, you know, if we give them resources, radicalization will go away. And to me, it was like, that's, it's not that they need more jobs. Sure, people do need more jobs, but just because you don't have a job doesn't mean you're gonna go and like bomb something yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, shoot up a school or kill you know your 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 friends and the closest people to you um, in your own neighborhoods. And you know there the 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 idea that either we forcefully throw everything um, in the book. Uh, on these people and incarcerate them forever to, you know, spending exorbitant amounts of money in, in resources and um, in, in groups uh, that, that are not actually going to fully understand or address, uh, you know, the, the ailments that, that exist um, with, within uh, those that are being radicalized and what makes them vulnerable to radicalization um, you don't see anything in between. And I think, yeah. you know, we have an opportunity right now to, to recognize that it's not a good thing when you other, it's not a good thing when you allow fear to drive you. Um, when you are terrorized, it's never okay to terrorize other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, I think it's surprising because I think white America has been convinced that I hate them and like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that I, I want, you know, people's civil liberties to be stripped. But that's, that's, that to me is the most terrifying uh, thing that we can do right now. Um, what we 
you know, need uh, is to have policies that are rooted in justice, policies that are going to uplift people, create opportunities uh, for there to be understanding, for people to, to be able to come forth and have a conversation without feeling like they're outing themselves as a dangerous human being. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, there, there is an in-between. There are those that can be radicalized to be violent. And, um, and we have to figure out how to get to them uh, before they are uh, radicalized. Yeah, well, it's I, you know it's a powerful uh, point, especially com- given that you, as you say, have been the, you know a target of so much vitriol. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I think reminding us that we need to look at the causes of radicalization and not just people um, who who have grievances as as threats is is uh, hopefully the opportunity in front of us. I wanted to look outward um, about something you've been working on in the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, which is similarly about examining, um, you know, American policies and uh, whether they're both effective and and tied to justice. And that's sanctions policy. Um, and you and I have talked about this in the past, but recently you uh, wrote a letter or co-signed a letter to President Biden asking him to review U.S. sanctions policies, particularly in light of COVID and the fact that it's been difficult to, to get medical supplies or humanitarian supplies to some of the heavily sanctioned countries. What are you hoping to see from the administration? Um, and I'm going to get to the longer term question of sanctions themselves, but just on this this narrow question of COVID relief and humanitarian exemptions, what are you hoping to see from that sanctions review if it, if it goes forward? Um, I mean, I think the the ultimate um, goal of of this letter that I wrote that I was so pleased to to get Senator um, Elizabeth Warren and Congressman um, Chuy Garcia to lead with me uh, was that you know we 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 would get the administration to sort of take a step back um, and holistically review. Uh, the the sanctions that we have in in place to see if there are some that are counterproductive to our ultimate goals, um, as you and I have talked about, there are many. Yeah. Uh, and to to also look at if any of the the sanctions we currently have in place have had humanitarian um, implications and have um, you know hindered. Uh, the the ability for some of these countries to address the the global pandemic uh, that that we are currently faced with, um, and you know, whether there there is an opportunity um, for us to to address uh, the implications of harm in in those sanctions. Well, and if you look at the um... You know, one of the powerful moments, for instance, I remember of your tenure on the committee was when you questioned Elliot Abrams over Venezuela policy. Um, there's, again, an example where we've piled sanction after sanction on a country and and not achieved our objectives at all. Um, the stated objectives of, you know, trying to, I don't know, really impose a transition to a different government. Um, but even if you take it as well-meaning to to have a, you know a democratic government in Venezuela, um, but we've also harmed the people. Um, and, and you know you can look at all these cases where we've really used sanctions: Ven- Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, and, and the both the problems that we're trying to solve keep getting worse, and, um, and and often the people themselves suffer. Do you get a sense from your colleagues because um, some of these sanctions are congressionally imposed? 
that there's a an appetite for kind of reconsidering whether we're overusing sanctions? Is this something that you've, I mean, you mentioned Senator Warren joining your letter is a good sign, but do you think that there's a potential evolution uh, in Congress where sanctions are often the thing that people turn to to show that they're doing something, to show how tough they are? Um, is this conversation kind of ripening in a way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really... Um... How do I want to say this? I think it is uh, really exciting um, that you know the 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 conversations that we've ignited around uh, sanctions um, for the last two and a half years uh, have made some of our colleagues in Congress um, start to think about them because, as as you know, you know sanctions usually um, are put in place is, is, is like muscle memory. I, I think yeah. that was a word that you used yeah. when we chatted. Um, there, there is really no real thought that goes into what happens after the, the sanctions go into place. There, there are no clear processes of, you know, what a country has to do in order for these sanctions to be lifted. Yeah. Um, and so there are sanctions that are, put on, you know, some African countries and they have been trying to get off of, you know, have these sanctions lifted um, and they come to us and they, you know, they're like, we don't, there's no clarity um, on how to do this. And I am pleasantly uh, surprised um, and excited that there are now members leading the um, efforts on foreign affairs committee um, to actually review uh, some of the sanctions that 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 are congressionally um, uh, put on, and to um, push the administration uh, to to do a, a thorough review as well of some of these centuries-old sanctions that we have yeah, uh, yeah. On, on countries. Well, and given the moment that we're in, too, I mean, you to, to broaden this out a bit, you know, you have a new president. Obviously, you also have a new chairman of that committee. Um, as you look at uh, the Biden administration, um, what would you like to see? I think there's so much focus on the domestic debates right now and the size of the relief package and the ambition uh, appropriately on things like you know climate and housing. Um, what would you like to see in terms of foreign policy to signal not just a, a break from from Trump, um, and we've seen that in a lot of ways, but but what are as you look at it for the next year? Where would you like to see this administration move in, in a new direction, a more progressive direction in terms of, of American foreign policy, broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, as, as you probably know, you know, many of uh, your former colleagues are, <laughs> are part of this administration. Um, and I will say uh, they some of them do have um, foreign policy uh, viewpoints that are very much similar to some of the foreign policy that I support and, and the ways that I like to see um, things, you know, play out. Uh, and the, the political realities from the administration that you served um, are very much different now. <laughs> the world is different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have a different opportunity uh, to not just rely on some of these muscle memory um, foreign policies that that used to exist and to explore um, really the other tools that we have in our, our toolbox. Um, so I've been 
pleasantly surprised to see the administration take um, a position uh, on the Saudi-led um, coalition uh, assault on, on Yemen. Um, their willingness to uh, engage with Iran um, in uh, a comprehensive, cohesive way uh, that ultimately brings uh, an end um, to, to the standstill. Uh, and, you know, their, their ideas of um, hopefully, you know, putting our values and principles um, in, in motion when it comes to uh, some of um, our neighbors down south. Well, and one one other issue, I mean, because part of what I think has also changed, right, and I think talking to a lot of people in the Biden administration, they get it, the, the connections between foreign and domestic policies are kind of out the window uh, on a, a lot of things. Climate change, first and foremost, and they're you know, big ticket items like the scale of their climate ambitions in Congress um, and what they're going to do abroad. And then there are all the the issues underlying that. And and there was one I know um, in in Minnesota around the the Line Three pipeline, which goes from Canada through through Minnesota. Um, and there was a lot of grassroots activism calling on the Biden administration to to cancel that along the lines of uh, what they did with Keystone and canceling it. Um, I guess talk a little bit about why projects like that are important and, and why people should be aware of the kind of activism even at the local level on something like that. You know, connects to the bigger goal of of how the world can get its arms around climate change. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, oftentimes, you know, there there is uh, a community that is struggling um, in in their opposition to uh, you know these the the construction of of these pipelines. Uh, and for us in Minnesota, it's the indigenous community um, that really will cease to exist. Uh, if you know this this pipeline um, continues because it it not only impacts you know a thousand acres of wetlands but it will ultimately touch 211 um, bodies of water and um, it will not it will impact you know, all of uh, the the Mississippi and so not not only is it going to have an impact in northern Minnesota it will um, touch my constituents uh, and you know, people all the way down um, uh, down the Mississippi in in, in different states as well, uh, and so the the activism around this um, has allowed for for this conversation now to become a national conversation. I got an opportunity to visit, and we've had you know multiple um, media stories around it, uh, and there is. Um, some attention being uh, brought to to this issue and the struggle uh, that the, the Native American community has had um, in their fight against this this pipeline, because it's not just a, a climate um, impact and, and a climate crisis issue, but it's also a sovereignty, uh, indigenous yeah. sovereignty, yeah. is a treaty rights violation, um, and you know Minnesota is fast fastest warming um, state uh, in, in the country. And, um, and you know, we, we, we can't really afford um, to continue to have one of the dirtiest um, uh, fossil fuel um, sources 
polluting um, our environment. Yeah, no, well, it's a good reminder that injustice issues and climate issues, you know, um, inter- intersect often. Um, and and uh, the activism that is, uh, you know, necessary at the local level is also necessary to be multiplied globally. So, so your, uh, your reminders on that are, are, are very well heeded. Um, I'll let, I want to end on just a, a small note. We have a- well, I will say, yeah. I mean, Al Gore um, was uh, just talking about how we shouldn't allow any more permits for pipelines. Yeah. Um, and he included line three. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that his voice is uh, being added to this will, will help reach uh, the Biden administration, and they will uh, deny that permit. No, and it's a good point that these individual fights on specific issues uh, uh, spotlight broader problems, right? Um, that are really necessary if we're going to transform the wiring, literally, of the entire global economy, which is what's necessary. Um, I, I I did want to end on just a, a lighter note. We have a, a very canine-friendly workforce um, at Cricket Media who couldn't help alerting me to the fact that you have a new member of your staff in Washington. Um, so uh, if you could share how how Teddy, uh, I think a Labrador, right, is doing, um, whether that's improved the environment um, in, in Congress at all. Uh, we're eager to know. Um, <laughs> he is uh, almost three, a little over three, I think. And uh, he's he's great. He's just, he, he, he brings joy both to um, our, our family at home and our family at work. That's good. Uh, we could all use a, a, a dog in our life right now. Um, <laughs> well, he, he, like we named him Teddy because he looks he looks like a teddy bear. Uh, and you know my 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 youngest daughter is having a hard time with the the rapid growth that he's experiencing at the moment. Yeah. No. Well, <laughs> because we, we want to keep him as as you know as cuddly and small as possible. I but. I know my kids are after me to get. We're, I've promised them a, a puppy, but they've now figured this out that they want to they want to get a puppy that stays a puppy and doesn't actually grow into a full grown dog. And I've had some very long conversations with my four year old about why that's that's not possible, but we'll try. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. Full-grown looking dogs that are uh, that are smaller that are that look like a puppy. Yeah, yeah that's probably where we'll end. Uh, well, look, we're rooting for you. We're, we're uh, uh, again. Uh, people should you know uh, people obviously follow you. I think on on a lot of these national issues, but should really follow you, uh, our audience, on these foreign affairs committee issues because you know you've been a voice challenging the status quo the last few years, and and I think you know can help both support the new administration but also nudge them. Um, uh, in in particular directions too. So we'll be uh, we'll be watching uh, with interest. And thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Congresswoman Omar. Uh, I I hope Teddy's doing well. I would like a play date with him uh, immediately. But yeah, like she said Teddy's named Teddy because he looks like a teddy bear. So that's a cute little guy. I can confirm that. I saw some photos on Twitter. So uh, thanks to her again. Thanks to Teddy. And uh, thanks to listeners. And see you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmal Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. 